I hope you read over the insert in your bulletin about uh, this being our 190th year anniversary. Um, uh, Ms. Comer and I were speaking right before the service, and there, we'd had two dates. June 18th is typically seen as the day of the anniversary of our founding, but really it was just a few days before that, on a Thursday of that week, that these people signed. Their names were uh, put there as the original members, and then they celebrated communion for the first time together on, on the, uh, the 18th of, of June. And so we are grateful. I hope you'll read over this. And uh, you see on the back the earliest known picture of the present church from the 1870s. It was built in 1858. Back about 12 years ago, we refurbished this sanctuary, and when the carpet was pulled up, these original floors, these are the original floors that were here, and they probably were 150 years old when they went in. <laughs> so the trees, uh, so we... Um, of course, then there was no choir loft. Every, it was uh, the pews came all the way to, toward the front, and there's an alcove behind the organ pipes where the preacher would stand and preach. And so, uh, 200 people uh, built a sanctuary that at that time sat 600. So they were people of vision. Of course, Macon was new; it was growing, the whole area. But they they anticipated what God would do in the future, and so we're grateful that we benefit from what they did long ago, but I hope that you'll take that and read over it. Uh, I'm going to mention this at this service, since they're not here, they were at the first service, but today was the last Sunday that Jonathan and Beth Ann Kudnick and their children are with us. They've been with us for five years, and he's now going to, uh, uh, in his medical uh, rotation, going to uh, Knoxville. And uh, so they're, they're moving after today. But if you haven't gotten to say goodbye to them, they've been extremely involved in our church and their four little children uh, for the past uh, five or six years. Okay, we are uh, returning to this uh, series on the life of Elijah. And we come now today to the, the middle, you might say, of chapter 19 of 1 Kings. It's on page 301, if you're not sure where that is. Um, You know where 301 is. <laughs> but this is the eighth sermon in a series on the life of Elijah. And I'll begin reading in verse 9, and then I'll go back and explain kind of what has happened leading up to this. Hear God's word. There he came to a cave and lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains, and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint 
to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So ends the reading of, of God's holy word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask now that your spirit uh, would take this, your word. You tell us that that it is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword and that use it toward your purposes in Christ's name. Amen. God, the Bible tells us that God created our ancient foreparents, uh, Adam and Eve, and they, from what we read, had five senses like we have, taste, touch, sight, hear, and smell. But they also had a, another sense, a sixth sense, a spiritual spiritual sense which enabled them literally to walk and to talk with God in the garden that God had created and they loved God since they like us were created to do so but something happened and that is that they disobeyed God they broke his commandment and they they called it the Bible calls it sin to miss the mark and the result was that they died God had warned them that they would, in the day you, if you eat of it, you will surely die. But they didn't die physically then. That happened much later. They died spiritually. That spiritual sense that they had had now was lost. They suffered the consequences of their crime against God. But even in punishing them, God promised a Redeemer who would come later to pay for sins. You and I, the Bible tells us, are born spiritually dead. And by our actions, we, we commit crimes against God. And he says the punishment or the wages of such is death. Now, it, for some reason, it's just natural. Uh, it's part of our natures to think that there, if there is a God, then, then what I need to do is good things that can make me right with him. And so religious people and even non-religious people think that, uh, well, if I just do the right things, I'll gain favor with God, or even if I don't do the right things, but I try hard enough, then God will see the motivation, he'll see the intentions of my heart, and he will accept me. But the Bible says that the truth is, is that there is nothing you and I can do to make ourselves acceptable to God, that all the good deeds in the whole world will not do away with our problems of sin and death that we each, we each have. Thankfully, God is loving and merciful and gracious. And in his love and grace, he sent a substitute to take the punishment for us. Jesus, he became a man. No other substitute would do. He, he lived a sinless, perfect life. Then he allowed himself to be arrested, tried, convicted, nailed to a Roman cross, and in the place of others. He was on that cross, and as he was there, God took my sin, put those on Jesus, punished him in my place, and so Jesus took the punishment and the penalty that my sins deserved. He made a complete payment. He died on the cross. And so this was the fulfillment of the wages of sin being death. His body was taken down from the cross. It was placed in his tomb. His enemies thought, well, that'll be the end of that. But three days later, he rose physically and bodily from the grave. Death could not keep its hold on him because he had paid the penalty. And before he ascended into heaven, he told his followers to go into all the world, to all nations, and tell people about this gift of eternal life, which God now offers through Jesus. So the Bible is constantly asking in one way or the other, have you, as I would ask you today, have you received the gift of eternal life? 
To do so, you must believe that Jesus was God, the Son, that he was perfect, that he died in your place, that you cannot make yourself right with God through your own efforts, that when he died, that God the Father put your sins on him and that he paid for them. And now you repent. You turn from going your own way, from living for yourself, and you turn toward him and live for him. And when that happens, you are enabled to begin to love God and to obey him. But we are still broken people. And we still live with the consequences of the fall into sin. We have sinful natures. Now, in Reformed theology, that theology, the study of God coming out of the Protestant Reformation, there was a phrase or a term called total depravity. And that's very misunderstood what that means. Here is simply what it means. And that is that you and I have been affected by sin totally, in our totality. You've been affected in your emotions, in your body, in your will. We don't, our bodies suffer disease and death, illnesses. Our emotions don't function the way that God planned for them to function. We lose our tempers. We underestimate things. We feel uh, mismatched to situations at times. Our emotions don't line up with those. All of these are results of the sin, of, of the fall. And so, like Elijah, we, even as, as followers of Christ, can sink into darkness and despair and sorrow, even to the word depression. Now, I think God gives us this glimpse of his servant Elijah to show us how God delivered him, Elijah, from a very, very dark time in his life and he does it gently and he does it lovingly and he shepherds Elijah out of it. I'm glad the scriptures say that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours because none of us are exempt then from sorrow and sadness and discouragement. Okay, where have we been in this series? Very briefly. Um, this is the eighth sermon in the series. Uh, Elijah has, has come before wicked King Ahab, the king who's supposed to be leading God's people in righteousness and in the worship of Jehovah God, Yahweh. And yet this king and his wife Jezebel are leading them completely in the opposite direction. They are leading them in idol worship, in worshiping the god Baal, the god of nature. And uh, they are far from, from leading the people in the way that the king of God's people should. And so Elijah comes as God's messenger, and he says, there's going to be no rain except by my word. Uh, then to make a long story short, he comes back three and a half years later, and, and the, the results of the drought have just devastated that, that area, that area of the world. And uh, Ahab, rather than humbling himself, the king accuses Elijah. He just insults Elijah. He said, you're the one who's brought trouble on Israel. So there's this contest up on Mount Carmel, 2,000 feet above the Mediterranean Ocean, and the prophets of Baal jump around and, and do, do their thing all morning long for many hours to show their sincerity, asking Baal to come and, and send fire down and take their, their offering, their, their sacrifice, and yet nothing happens. And then Elijah calls on God, and instantaneously the the sacrifice is, is incinerated, and the rocks and the water and everything. And the people bow down and worship God. And, and then Elijah, before the praise and the rain comes, and he runs before Ahab's chariot as a, as a sign, as, a, as an expression from God that now God's word will come before the king, and God is giving Ahab a chance to repent. 
and yet Ahab goes home and there's no sign of any repentance. He, he blames all the troubles on Elijah and he tells Jezebel what had happened and then Jezebel just says, send a messenger to Elijah. Tomorrow at this time, Elijah's a dead man. And so we looked last week at the beginning of chapter 19. Elijah, when he hears this, he, he, he flees, he runs, he runs south a long way, over 100 miles and he, uh, he lays down and he goes to sleep. He's exhausted. He's isolated. He's, he's depressed spiritually. And, and he lays down under this tree, this, this broom tree that gives a lot of shade, and he sleeps. Now, I used a term. I want to make a parenthesis right here. When I use the term depression, uh, because that can mean different things to different people, um, I'm talking about the term spiritual depression, not physiological depression which typically needs medical help to alleviate. I'm not talking about chemical imbalances or things like that. Spiritual depression, as seen in the scriptures, especially in the Psalms, is when a person feels far from God. They feel almost as though God maybe has abandoned them. He's turned his back on them. And when you have lost sight of God's presence in your life, and you would even describe it that your heart has grown cold toward him, and that when you pray, the prayers don't seem to get, get past about a foot above your head, it would seem. That's what we would call spiritual depression. Okay, So uh, they're not the same. Now, one can cause the other or contribute to the other, but that's how I'm using the term. So you may be here today, and you're not physiologically depressed, but you would say, I'm spiritually depressed. My heart's cold toward God. I feel very distant from God. My, my heart is hard toward him, or I feel he, is, he has let me down. And we see the signs of this in Elijah. He had lost, we saw this last week. He had lost his perspective. He had gone from trusting God to now he's, he hears this threat to his life, and he's, all his confidence in God seems to evaporate. He's lost his vision of the greatness of God. He's lost his commitment to follow God's word. Up, up until this point, he has not made a single move that's not preceded by the word of the Lord came to Elijah and said this. Now he, is, he has gone AWOL on his own. God has not told him to flee to the south. He just does that. He goes a long way uh, there. And so he's exhausted. He's disappointed. He probably thought there would be complete revival. The people had bowed and, and, and worshipped God after the demonstration on Mount Carmel, but Ahab had not. And, and perhaps Elijah had thought it's going to be a complete victory. Ahab and, and the queen will turn to, to Jehovah, and yet that has not happened. And so he's, he's disappointed, and he, he's isolated, he's by himself. Could those words possibly describe you today, that, that you might feel that way? In a, in a crowd this size, I, I would assume someone does. Well, let's see how God responds to Elijah in this state. Uh, he sends his angel, as, as we read in verses 5 and following last time. The angel wakes him up, and, and rather than a rebuke, he's, he's baked him a cake. There's bread, there's water, and he provides food for him. There's, there's gentleness. This is God's mercy, and Elijah eats, and then he goes back to sleep again. And then the, the angel wakes him up again, and... and says there's more. You need more food. You've got a long journey in front of you. And so we see, we see this, this mercy, just the very same things that, that Jesus said, that uh, come to me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. 
What we need is spiritual rest in Christ, who is the bread of life, who offers us living water. And so we see that now after he gets this food and water and this rest, uh, God sends him to Mount Horeb. Now this was not a stone's throw away. This was 40 days away. This was a journey 200 miles from where Elijah had started running, which was in the city of Jezreel. And we call it Mount Sinai. This was where the Lord had brought his people after he brought them out of uh, bondage in Egypt. And it was there Moses met with God and received the Ten Commandments. And so the Jews viewed it as a holy place, and Elijah is, is coming there to meet with God, or God to meet with him. And verse 9, God speaks to him and says, The word of the Lord came. What are you doing here, Elijah? And these are the words of the great shepherd, uh, allowing Elijah to voice his concern. And in verse 10, as we read, he said, I, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. What is going on with Elijah? He has not lost his faith. He believes in God, but he has completely lost his confidence in God. He doesn't know what God is doing. As I mentioned, I think he had probably hoped and prayed for a complete revival, that after Mount Carmel, everyone would turn to God. But it had not happened. It, it happened more than he's describing, but it had not happened to meet up to his expectations. There had been no complete revival of God's people. From all indication, Ahab was just the same. He had not repented. And now Jezebel is plotting his death, and they're still on the throne, and they want to kill him. Let me ask you, have you ever prayed for someone that you love very much, and maybe you've prayed for a year, five years, ten years, this, that this person would perhaps come to faith in Christ or some other prayer request you have on their behalf over and over and over, and you were hopeful? You were optimistic. You might have even had assurance that God's going to answer the prayer exactly the way I, I'm asking. And best you know, it didn't happen. Maybe the, well, at least to this point, or maybe the person best you know died without Christ. Best you know, though we never know the final moments in a person's consciousness, but from what you know, and how do you feel about it? Surely d disappointed. Maybe dejected lost confidence in God and so next time someone says well let's pray about this under your breath you might be saying what's the point why waste my energy I prayed 20 years for something before and God didn't answer well if you in the least bit can relate to that you have an idea of what Elijah was feeling he's got faith in God he's just lost confidence in God so what does God do in verse 11 he reveals himself to him now, if you and I had been, um, I was going to say wagering, if we were going to guess which of these would work, we might pick the wind or the earthquake or the fire. I would have gone probably with the earthquake. I've never been in an earthquake, but everybody that has tells me you, you never forget it. I mean, never. So I would have thought, if God wants to get his attention and show up, that's the way. 
But in each of those three spectacular things that God does, uh, he shows up in the still small voice, the, the, the low whisper, the ESV says, of his word. And we see that in the scriptures. God rarely works through the spectacular. He uses his word. We see in the ministry of Jesus, there were miracles performed at the beginning of his ministry, but those pretty much desisted. They stopped. And with the exception of healing the high priest ear that Peter cut off with the sword, you see very few miracles of Jesus toward the end of his ministry because the miracles were done to call attention to who he was and what he was saying. But, but his preached word became more and more the focus of attention as his ministry went on. God uses his, his simple word, and that's what he does here with Elijah. And he, secondly, he enlightens Elijah's mind. When we get spiritually depressed, our perspective becomes distorted and warped. And, and as I mentioned, Elijah's saying, I'm the only one left. Well, God's getting ready to say, no, you're not. There's at least 7,000 more that I have reserved for myself. But in Elijah's mind, I don't doubt that he was serious, that he was thinking, I'm the only one. I'm the only faithful follower today. I'd say, I'm the only godly person here. I'm the only one that wants to follow Christ. No one else wants to follow Christ. Only me. And everybody's trying to kill me. Everybody, Elijah? No. Jezebel was the only one that said that. And she sent it by a messenger. All the other people are not out to get you. These things were not true, but they were the sincere thoughts of this spiritually depressed person. And when you are down, you may think, no one loves me. God doesn't love me. Why am I doing this? No one appreciates what I do. Why do I minister to these children? Or why do I work with these youth? Or why do I do this? Or why do I teach Sunday school? Or why do I spend my time investing over in, in this mercy ministry? Or whatever it might be. Why do I love my wife as Christ loved the church? And why do I seek that? Or why? And there's just no appreciation. And these are the typical overstatements and exaggerated perspectives of a person who is spiritually depressed, and that is to become fixated on the negative. Now, last week I mentioned the name of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And if you've been coming to this church for many years, you've heard that name mentioned by lots of preachers. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a doctor. He was a physician, and he was training to be a heart surgeon in London when God called him to the ministry. And his prime ministry was like from the 1930s up into the, uh, the 1970s. Uh, he preached at Westminster Chapel in London. Most of his sermons uh, were then transcribed into books. If you've got his studies in the Sermon on the Mount or his books on Romans or lot of Ephesians, you've got lots of books that have his sermons. And the book I mentioned last week, Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cure, uh, were sermons he preached to his congregation after World War II, when there was just kind of a prevailing spiritual depression among the whole congregation, and he really wanted to minister to them through those sermons. Well, a number of years ago, he preached nine sermons at the Pensacola Theological Institute. I, don't, I think that still goes on, yeah, down at McElwain Presbyterian Church. In the, in the summers. And those were put into a book. And in that book, in one of those sermons, he tells about something that happened way back in the 1930s. He was preaching in a small place outside of London, and he was preaching in the morning, and he was preaching in the evening, and after the morning service, some 
a couple of men in the church came and said, there's a man in our town, in our small town, who's the headmaster of a school. And he's greatly loved, and he's a very sincere Christian, and we, we love him, but he has fallen into a deep despair and sadness that just permeates all through his life. He's continuing to work, but he's, he comes to church, but basically he's just kind of shut down. Would you talk to him? And Dr. Lloyd-Jones uh, said, I'll be glad to talk to him. So they met, I believe, later that day. They sat down to talk, and, and he said, immediately when I saw the man, I could tell by his face, I, I almost knew what the problem was when I saw him, with how depressed uh, spiritually and physically this man was. And so he said, well, tell me what happened to you. Tell me what has brought this sadness into your life. And the man said, well, 15 years ago, during World War I, he said, I volunteered for the Navy and I was assigned to a submarine. And we, our submarine was part of a particular campaign in the Mediterranean, and we were under the water, and we hit some kind of mine. There was a thud, the whole submarine shuddered, and we sank, and we went down, 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 down to the bottom of the Mediterranean. And ever since then, I've been like this. And Dr. Lloyd-Jones said, well, okay, then what happened? He said, well, he said, tell me again. He said, well, I volunteered for the Navy. I went to the Navy, assigned a submarine, was in submarine, campaign in the Mediterranean, we're under the water, thud, shudder, down, 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 down to the bottom of the Mediterranean. And I've been like this ever since. And Dr. Lloyd-Jones said, but then what happened? Tell me again. Okay, I volunteered for the Navy, submarine, Mediterranean, under the water, thud, shudder, down, 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 down. And we're on the bottom of the Mediterranean. And Dr. Lloyd-Jones looked at him and said, Goodness, man, you're not still on the bottom of the Mediterranean. Surely a ship nearby saw what had happened. And they came and rescued you. They pulled the submarine up to the surface. And you were taken back to the shore and you went into a hospital. And you convalesced there. And then you got out of the Navy. And you went home. And now you're here today. Look at all that God has done. You are no longer on the bottom of the Mediterranean. He said, you didn't even mention the rest of the story to me. He said, at that moment, the man, God supernaturally, you might say, delivered this guy from his discouragement. And Lloyd-Jones said, I saw immediately what had happened. He had fixated on this terrible experience and not been able to get past it. By God's grace, he was able to get past it from that moment on. And so Elijah, Elijah is, is sincere. He probably thinks he is the only one still committed to God. He probably thinks every person in Israel is out for his life. So now what does God do? And the final point. He's enlightened his mind, he's corrected his perspective, and now he gives him a vision for the future and he recommissions him. His assignment as we read earlier, is to anoint these three guys, two as kings and one as prophet, basically as his successor. And what God is saying is the victory over Baal worship is going to come through a slow process that's going to take a lot of time and it's going to extend beyond your life, Elijah. The defeat of Baal will not happen in Elijah's lifetime and it will not happen by Elijah alone and Elijah's job just wasn't to fight well when he was there. It was to prepare others for the future. And God is doing two things by saying this to Elijah. He's letting Elijah know that he is a small part of a big plan. 
whether Elijah realizes it or not. But he's also telling Elijah that he's part of it. And so this ought to encourage Elijah. He's, he's letting Elijah know that it's much bigger and it will outlive Elijah. Hey, when these people, 200 people, well, not 200, but the 200 in the congregation, but when these people started a ministry here uh, long 190 years ago, uh, I think they were people of vision by the fact that they, 200 people, 600-seat sanctuary, all that. But we are here in one sense, I don't mean just in this building, because of them. Now, for all of us as believers, especially as we get older, we are to seek to reach the younger and disciple and mentor. And, of course, as parents, the first priority is our own children. And those of us that are grandparents, that's a priority too. But then it's Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the other parts of the world. So I plead with you who are, who are older, 40 years and older, or, or not that old, invest in younger people. If you want to increase your influence, if you talk to your friends and you say, well, they don't ever listen to me, here's how you increase your influence. You go down. You go down in age. <laughs> That's what the Bible says. Let the older women train the younger. Older men train the younger. And so that's he's telling Elijah to, to, to go and anoint these people. And last, last thought or so. And he gives him a word of assurance, and that's about the 7,000 in verse 18. There's still 7,000 people faithful. They've not bowed the knee to Baal. It doesn't even sound like these were the people on Mount Carmel. These were others. So Elijah, you're not alone. There's always a remnant. God always has a remnant. And sometimes it looks small. Sometimes it looks invisible. Uh, but God is always great, and he accomplishes his purposes. So what does Elijah do? I didn't continue reading, but he jumps right up. Whatever discouragement was there and now is gone. And he goes and he finds Elisha, which, by the way, was 150 miles away. <laughs> 150 miles on foot, where he goes to Abel Mahola. And so that's where he finds Elisha plowing a field. Now, I, I, I close with this thought, pro I promise you. <laughs> and, and that is, when we get spiritually depressed and negative and perhaps fixated on, on the negative and feel that God is, where'd God go? Uh, the main thought that we'll often have is, my best days were behind me. I remember when God used me, and whatever I experienced then, I guess from here on out, it's just going to look like this. That looks like sunshine. This looks like darkness. And I guess it's going to remain this way. Not so. And often, the best days are ahead of us. Here's why I say it with Elijah's case. Imagine with me, in my imagination, hopefully a sanctified imagination, as Elijah first goes under that broom tree, prays for death, then he goes down to Sinai, and God meets with him. He's still totally distorted in his thinking. He probably thought, well, I'm finished, and I don't want any more of this. You go ahead and take my life. He probably, in his wildest dreams, never knew that the next time he would be on a mountain, he'd be standing next to Moses and Jesus, God incarnate, and Peter, James, and John looking on from just a short place away on the Mount of Transfiguration. I would imagine Elijah had no idea what was going to happen in the future, that he would get to see the Redeemer 
and see him transfigured on that mountain before those disciples, to see a glimpse. His glory was unveiled before them all. What might God do in your life that's beyond your imagination? And I don't mean something spectacular as much as something significant. Who might you influence who might influence others? What child or grandchild or great-grandchild or other nephew or person at work or person at child you're teaching in Sunday school or, or wherever that influence might be, what might God do through them long after your footstones down in Riverside Cemetery? What might God do? Let's pray together. Now, Father, we thank you for the fact that you use people just like us, like this Elijah, with a nature just like ours, prone to the same fears, anxieties, and uh, false ideas as us. And yet you persevere with us, and we thank you. Thank you for the Lord Jesus, that in him we have hope, uh, that hope to spend eternity with you, a reason for living now, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take your order of service and you'll see the words to the doxology. Please stand if you will. We'll receive the benediction from God and then sing together the doxology. May grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Praise God from the